Welcome to the Making Money Simple podcast. This episode is going to be all about property first principles. We're going to specifically be talking about the 18-year property cycle, then moving on to leverage and how that works, as well as then looking at some tips and being an added value investor. I'm joined today by Richard Brown, who is a global property investor. Uh, He has his own podcast, The Property Voice. He's an author of multiple books a personal friend and mentor of mine. And we also have recorded another episode before this in terms of using your home as an investment. So if you've not checked that episode out, check it out after this one. But Richard, thank you for coming back on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ryan. Good to be back. Good to speak to you again. Yeah, I was going to say, first one went so well, back for round two. But we're (laughs) once again going to be talking about property, which I know that's where your expertise are and you're a very experienced property investor. So to get straight into it, I guess, as we were saying before we started recording, we'll start off the big picture and then get more into the specifics and the detail. So the 18-year property cycle, do you want to talk us through what it is, how it works, what it means for those listening? Yeah, sure. So I think with, you know, anything in economics, usually there's, there's theories, okay, but people come out and then they taught those theories and then they work until they don't work anymore. So I think there's probably long cycles as well that we, we could touch into, you know, as it called congression waves, I think it is. But in terms of the property cycle, the 18 year property cycle, this is something that has been researched. It was made popular by Fred, by Fred, I think <laughs> his name properly. But anyway, he came up with a lot of research going back over a long period of time, not just in the UK, but elsewhere too, particularly the US. And there was, a, there was a pattern that he observed in terms of property prices. So we're talking about prices here, not rents or anything like that. And it, it, it went through some distinct phases. And I guess, you know, we start at the bottom of a cycle. So usually that's, you know, uh, the bottom of a cycle is where something's just gone down. So we'll get to that. So the recovery phase is the first, you know, phase, if you like, of the 18-year property cycle. And that typically takes up to seven years. And by the way, all of these numbers are approximate, they're not exact. So up to seven years is the recovery phase. And then the market can have a, you know, property market can have a a wobble. And that's usually called the mid-cycle dip. And sometimes people can panic at that point, thinking prices are going to crash, but it's more of a wobble. You know, it's maybe a slight cooling or even an easing of prices. And then it will go again for another seven-year cycle. So we've got first seven years, mid-cycle, you know, dip, and then another seven years, and that, that's the expansion phase in that seven-year period of time. There's a few clues as to when the, the end of that cycle is coming. And this is really the, the best way to look out for it, in my opinion, because quite a lot of things, you could go to all the data and try and work it out. But the best ways of doing it are I know, I, I sort of loads of skyscrapers in cities, loads of records being broken for the tallest building in the world. And another two things. One is very easy access to credit and lending. That is really important. If you start to see 100% mortgages, 110% mortgages, no, you know, self-certification types of lending, then you know that you're probably towards the top of the cycle. And that's coupled with the fact that everybody's talking about house prices. You go to a dinner party, you're talking about house prices. So you go, you go down to the pub, you're talking about house prices. And that's usually an indication that the expansion phase has uh, probably got a little bit too hot and it can't be sustained any longer and that will lead to you know a, re, you know a correction or a crash and that that is then the fourth phase of the cycle which is the recession so there's going to be a dip over a period of time and that will bottom out but i think the the key point to really take away about the idea of the 18 year property cycle apart from the fact it is a cycle it's relatively predictable but although it's not exact is that when the when you bottom out of the cycle after 18 years 
the bottom of the 18 year cycle is still above the start of the 18 year cycle. So therefore, you know, prices are overall still moving upwards over time, even though they kind of go up and then down slightly over that period of time. So I think that's hopefully done it relative justice to explain it. Does it, does it make sense to you, Ryan? Yeah, no, that was a great summary, Richard. I mean, I was going to say, if anyone wants to see a visual representation, if you just Google 18-year property cycle, you can see visually what Richard just talked us through. But my main takeaway, and I've also got written down here, is is that the next cycle always starts higher than the previous cycle. And it's sort of, I guess, similar when it comes to stock market investing as well. But generally speaking, long-term investing, prices normally go up over time, which is why not only buying and holding is just a simpler strategy it also works out well because you'll grow your wealth slowly over time the mid cycle dip as well you mentioned where there's the little wobble and as you said people often can get nervous or scared if there's some media headlines flying around but that's actually the best place to carry on holding or if not investing more right before that explosion phase happens over the next seven or so years as you mentioned i mean the question which you might expect to come and obviously it's impossible to know but where do you think we currently are in the property cycle in terms of this 18 years the mid-cycle dip was that covid and we're now in the exposure phase or are we at the end of the exposure phase with a lot of things going on in terms of the cost of living crisis maybe mortgages now more unaffordable deposits are hard to save all-time property prices where do you think we are in the cycle richard yeah it's 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 a really good question it's also a very tough question to answer and okay if we take the the logic of an 18 year cycle where 18 years is the bottom then the last bottom was 2008 uh, that's when the last crash started it was 2008 uh, slash 2009 and then it lasted about four years if you you know think it through so if you just add on 18 years from the, the last bottom it should be 2026 really you know but it's never exact. Well, I say yeah. it's never exact. It's usually a plus or minus. So it could be 2026, could be 2028, could be 2024. I don't know for sure. But by definition, if we're 2022, we're getting we're up that explosive or you know, expansion sort of phase where we're we're into that. But we haven't got all the skyscrapers everywhere. We haven't got the easy credit. We haven't got everybody talking about it if, here, there, and everywhere. So there's some of the sort of softer indicators if you like that we're topping out the other thing is if you look at pure affordability we should already be crashed okay (laughs) (laughs) income multiples uh, versus house prices they're at the highest level certainly since the global financial crisis and therefore we should have crashed already i think they're at seven or eight times you know on an average basis across the country and that's the last time we saw that was global financial crisis and there was a crash and so the question is why hasn't it crashed and, and the main reason why it hasn't crashed is a different kind of affordability, which is the actual mortgage payments. So people look at affordability based on a multiple of their income, which is actually it's one indicator, but it's not the best one. The best one is if can you afford the mortgage payments. And the biggest driver about what it affects mortgage payments, apart from pricing, is interest rates. Mm. And we've been through a consistently low, and it's a topic we're talking today, the Bank of England has put interest rates up again. And so that's that's something to watch out for. So I think as interest rates start to go up, that will put more of a pinch on affordability, actual affordability out of your pocket. And as you quite rightly point to the cost of living crisis, that's another squeeze. So these are some of the things that could lead us to the, the, the kind of explosive phase or expansion phase coming to an end and maybe house prices going through that sort of cooling off that correction or that uh, or even that crash. Yeah. By the way, just going back to what you said earlier about, you know, holding for the long term and stuff like that. But you probably 
subscribe to this view of buy the dips. Yeah. So buy the dips. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean don't don't buy consistently because that's pound cost averaging. But in, in particular, look for dips and that's a good time to get in and maybe snatch back some of the, the money that's been lost over the period of time. You just need yeah. to know if it's the mid cycle dip, the end of the cycle dip. Yeah. And I guess, as we said already a couple of times, the most important thing is each cycle starts higher than the previous one. And I think I actually did see the person, you called him Fred, the person who, I guess, first invented this, or or Harrison, yeah, yeah, whoever came up with this originally. I think he actually did predict that it will be in 2026, which I think is quite interesting because that's still four years away. And when you, as we mentioned, the cost of living crisis is squeezing people's pockets. Interest rates are probably going to carry on going higher because inflation is at, you know, nearly 10%. So you'd expect interest rates to rise to try and bring that down. So it will be interesting to see if the... 18-year property cycle is maybe only a 14-year cycle or 16-year cycle this time around. Because as you said, every time it's a bit different. Obviously, we'll have to see what happens in reality. One more interesting thing as well, actually. So I know you mentioned it's also affected by access to credit. And I think it's fairly recently, maybe a month or so ago, they've removed some of the stress tests. Am I right in saying when it comes to affording or trying to get a mortgage so you still have to they still look at your income multiple where you need maybe four or five times your salary to afford the property but i think they've removed some of the stress tests when it actually comes to checking what you can afford so maybe that's sort of showing the slight loosening and a bit more access to credit which could then cause some more wobbles in the coming years you're right and that's a good spot actually ryan that you picked up on that i saw it myself uh and you and i was like "Ooh, here we go here we go um (laughs) but this is what happens it happens on a drip by drip basis and you don't really notice it it's like you know it's sort of a little drip on your head doesn't do you any harm but after a thousand of these drips it's gonna you're gonna get a headache (laughs) and i think that's what's happening you know so that's an indicator there's still you know they said oh we're not being reckless because there's still some other protections in place and then they listed what the protections are but really, this is the sign that maybe credit is starting to get looser. Mm. But you know, usually what precedes a property crash, a genuine property crash at the end of the cycle, is very loose credit. So that is, you know, low deposits, no proof of income, you know, kind of correct, just crazy stuff that you, when you look back, you go, how did we ever do that? <laughs> <laughs> but then every, every 18 years, it seems to happen all over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We forget. We forget. Yeah. The classic line, this time it's different, is a... Uh the most dangerous line when it comes to investing or I guess buying assets. Okay, so that's the 18-year property cycle, probably the most important graph you'll look at when it comes to property. And hopefully if you are buying and investing in property, it gives you a bit of comfort that property has followed this trend, as you said, in the UK and the US for so long. Moving on to a very important principle or concept now and what probably makes property investing very powerful, especially compared to stock market investing, is leverage. So do you want to talk us through that, Richard, and what it is and how it works? Yeah, sure. So I normally bundle a couple of things together under the same sort of principle, leverage and other people's money. So because leverage is a form of using other people's money. Leverage is basically borrowing, it's debt. So to make your purchasing power greater than it otherwise would be. So a very easy way to illustrate this in in the housing context is a deposit. You know, you're going to buy a property, let's say it's £100,000. If you need, for example, it's a home you're going to buy, because I'm going to go back to the home ownership example. If you need a, if you need a 10% deposit to buy it and use a mortgage, you, you clearly you need £10,000, ignoring other costs for the moment. So you need £10,000. And then the 90000 is debt in the form of a mortgage, which gives you the £100,000 purchasing power. So 
you can, in that example, you can multiply your purchasing power by a factor of 10. Mm. So from 10,000 up to 100,000. So that, you know, it's an illustration. It doesn't, it's not, you know, it, it's just an example. It doesn't, and it ignores a lot of things. And then the other idea I kind of bring with this is if you take the idea of other people's money, in this case, the other person is a bank or a mortgage lender. Okay. Another idea, and the other big one I really like to talk about is tax. So other people's money, use the tax man to help you. So if you can get tax benefits in whatever form, that's another form of using other people's money to grow your purchasing power. So that's leverage in a yeah. nutshell. And, and just what it means is, so one, it grows your purchasing power, but then it combines with another thing, which is your return on you know, cash or your return on capital employed. So if you can imagine that £100,000 property we've just spoken about with a £10,000 deposit, that's okay. It's, it, if it's a home ownership, you'll get away with a £10,000 deposit. If it's a buy-to-let, it's more like 25000 But if you just look at the house price growth, your house price is going to go up assuming it does, subject to the 18-year property cycle, it's going to go up based on the 100,000, not on your 10 or your 25,000. So your gains will be on the, the sort of combined value, not just on your deposit funds. And that's why leverage is so important. And that allows you to get more you know, bang for your buck, basically, more return when you're using leverage than when you're not using leverage. Yeah, no, that's a great summary again, Richard. I mean, I guess a good way to illustrate it. I know you can't really compare asset classes is a bit like comparing apples with oranges but of course if you went to you know a bank to try and borrow ninety thousand pounds to invest in crypto or in the stock market there's unless you're warren buffett there's no chance you're going to be able to borrow any money to put in the stock market or crypto at least at a decent interest rate with property though banks would be more than happy to lend you that £90,000. Of course, there's checks, but generally speaking, banks are very happy to lend you that money to get an asset, a house for £100,000. So I guess that's probably why property investment is so powerful. And then to link into that, as you mentioned, the return on cash invested, only putting £10,000 into a property. And then if that grows even you know, a couple of percent per year, keeps up with inflation, all of a sudden on a very small sum invested, you have a hundred thousand pound home growing over time and you can get some yeah very good yields and returns on that money that's two ticked off the list now we're moving into <laughs> principle number three after the property cycle and leverage and using other people's money being an added value investor is how you put it to me do you want to explain what that means and then how this is a principle that we need to apply to property being an added value investor so warren buffett calls himself a value investor <laughs> um <laughs> And I've uh, kind of, you know, stolen half of that phrase. And I, I call myself an added value investor. So the key word being added, you know, there, so added value. So I try and summarize what I'm talking about here with what I call the three Fs. So F for Foxtrot, uh, three Fs. And so, and they all, the, the Fs, are, they all begin with force. Okay. So force as in, you know, strength. Star Wars. So, <laughs> Star Wars, may the force be with you. Yes, exactly. So there's three of the uh, three of those Fs, and they are basically force the discount, force the appreciation, and force the yield. When I'm looking at some sort of property deal, the easiest one to start with is discount. So you know, someone, you know, a lot of people, you know, there's a sort of a crazy obsession with below market value in the, in property circles. And that's forcing the discount, right? Getting it below its market value. Buy it for something today, sell it for more tomorrow. Actually, you can't really do that with property because it's not a very tradable asset, but there we go. So forcing the discount is the first one. So can you get a discount off a price? 
And of course, you, you, you make your money going into a deal, right? So discount going in is great. But people, that's overblown. People get obsessed with only trying to get a discount. And then they often ignore the other two. And so the other two being forcing the appreciation. Forcing the appreciation means forcing the value to go up over and above what it would do naturally in the market. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the key distinction. So you're adding value to a property to make it go up in value over and above what it would do if you didn't add that value. So, you know, one, one easy way to say that is you develop it in some way. A development with a small D could be add an extension, you do a refurbishment. A development with a big D, you could split a house into flats. You can actually do literal developments by building uh, ground up developments. So forcing the appreciation is the second one. And then forcing the yield is something that a lot of people don't really think about naturally. So when you think of a buy to let or anything like that, the yield is, is the gross annual rent as a percentage of the property price or the property value. That's the yield, this you know, gross return. It, it ignores costs and taxes and things like that. Um, so forcing the yield means that you make more rental profit than you, know, you would do compared to a regular buy to let. So a regular buy to let nationally makes about, you know, the gross yield is about four to 6%, depending on where you are in the country. Could be less in central London, could be more in you know, certain parts of the country. So if you can get above that average of four to 6%, then you're forcing the yield upwards. And some examples of how you can do that would include things like turning it into like a house of multiple occupation. So you, you're slicing the house up into rooms, you rent each room out, and as a consequence, you get a higher overall rent doing it that way. Another example would be short-term renting like Airbnb type of thing. So there's a couple of good examples. But here's my biggest tip on that. Don't get bogged down on just purely discount. If you take a little bit of discount, a little bit in the appreciation and a little bit enforcing the yield, you can actually get a really good property deal without being super, super greedy and then sitting on the fence waiting for that perfect deal to land when in, in, invariably it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say that once again, a, a great summary and that all makes sense. I do think that that below market value just from reading like property books and magazines is a bit of a buzzword and people often get roped into purely trying to invest at the lowest possible points and then get i guess making that money when you buy but as you mentioned you also then make money through appreciation whether that's natural over time or you add in value yourself by doing an extension or splitting it into flats as you gave a few examples and then the yield as well yeah we didn't actually think about that so what are some ways you can actually get i know you gave a few examples what do you think the easiest way is to get above an average yield would it be to turn it into a hmo because then you can get a house of multiple occupants and charge per room rather than for the whole house? That's certainly one way, as short-term rent is another one. I think, so it's just basically renting to someone who would pay above the sort of average rent. So you could also change the type of tenant you, re you rent to in, uh, in a home. Yeah. It could still be a single family, but you know, it could be someone who could pay more rent. That probably brings some extra risk with it, by the way, to do that one. I think that there, there's some other ways. I'm just, by my, just to, trying to scratch my head with a couple of other examples for you that I could give that would help people. Yeah, I think here's the thing north versus south of the country so generally speaking outside of london and the southeast particularly as you go to the midlands and the north of the country the average yield is higher yeah so just location could make a difference to force the yield so if you happen to live in a low yield location like london and the southeast but invest in a higher yield location like midlands and the north then you're you know you're getting a better return than you would do if you invested locally there's always a trade-off. Sometimes the trade-off is, you know, 
with house prices or being a bit too far away to keep an eye on your property. Yeah, that all makes sense. Great examples and tips as always, Richard. One more question I had on this. In terms of adding value and in terms of that, that second F, forcing the appreciation, obviously you have the natural property prices generally gone up over time. But then in terms of actually forcing the appreciation, what do you think are maybe some of the best slash simplest ways to add value? Maybe just sort of like a normal live with your partner in a you know two or three bed house. Is it through an extension or maybe converting another room into a bedroom? What do you think some of the maybe better or more simple ways are to add value? I guess the more grandiose it is, the more value you have potential to add. But just as a few yeah tips or ideas on that one. Yeah, so you've got, so people obviously, they start thinking about the property itself and then you think about some form of development activity. And so adding usable living space, that's the, that's one to think about. So adding, adding a, a sort of an extension, as you quite rightly say, adds to the footprint of the property, which should put, put its value up. Create some, in some areas, creating an extra bedroom, even within the existing uh, property can add value, believe it or not. You just need to look at the splits between say a two bed and a three bed or a three bed and a four bed. And if you've got one with, you know, generous room sizes, hint, not new build, then you can sometimes, you know, squeeze an extra bedroom and uh, the, in the UK, it's quite different. The, the sort of residential property market, people will put a higher value on number of rooms versus the sort of pure cost per square foot, cost per square meter. So that's another one. The other one is apart from the property itself. So you can refurbish the property. You can put a new kitchen in, a new bathroom in. You can actually improve property through good design, clever design. You know, I've seen people put like a, 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 like a wall garden in, a, in an investment property and then, you know, people want to rent it and it just uh, it forces, you know, forces the value up that way. So there's some around the property, there's a few there. Then there's a few which are not usually around the property specifically. And so one, one of the most obvious ones is, is planning gain or planning uplift. So if you've got a property and you go and get planning permission, which, by the way, is a paper exercise, you're not doing anything to the property itself. You're just going to get permission to develop or permission to build. And so, you know, if you get permission to convert it into flats, you get permission to build a second plot in the garden, things like that. You don't actually have to do the work to add value. So the, the mere fact that you've got planning permission actually adds value to the property. And then, whether, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to develop it out to realize some of that value. Oh, I didn't realize that actually. So that's quite handy because then essentially... I guess someone could then see that as they've not got a faff around themselves trying to get the plan permission because you already got it. So then they put then a higher value on buying that property because you have the option to build another house or convert it into flats. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. But no, I do like those three Fs. So forcing the discount, forcing the appreciation, forcing the yield. And that is essentially then, I guess, cumulatively comes together to make you an added value investor. To wrap up this podcast then, what have you got for us? What can uh, an extra few gems that people can take away before we come to a close? I know we haven't got a lot of time, so I'm going to try and summarize them rather than go into great depth. So for me, I cannot leave this podcast and you cannot edit it out without me saying this. Investing, whether it's property or otherwise, it's all about the numbers. Having said that, it's not all about the numbers. But it is, it's all about the numbers. So what I mean by that is, you know, model things out, look at the returns and be non-emotive. Remove emotion. Just look at the spreadsheet. Just look at that. I like, I like how you said remove emotion in almost like a robotic tone. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, basically markets are driven by emotion, greed and fear. Okay. You know, typically. 
So it's really difficult to do what I've said. And that's why I'm stressing it so much. You know, you have to go against the tide. You have, you know, if people are like, you know, jumping like lemmings off a cliff, then, you know, don't go with them because, you know, you're going to fall off the cliff as well. So you have to sort of just go on what the numbers are telling you. Not exclusively, but just that's the first principle. And that kind of leads on to another couple of follow-ons to that. And, you know, investing is not the same as speculating and it's definitely not the same as gambling. They are very, very different. And you need to know when you're investing, when you're speculating and when you're gambling. And it's okay to gamble sometimes, but just don't do it with your entire pension pot, okay? <laughs> sensible, sensible advice. <laughs> so that's another sort of tie tip. Yeah, and then the last ones, just to summarize, really would be if I always do full research and due diligence. So your checks, basically your own checks on, on everything and everybody. And then the final one is if you do any sort of agreement, any kind of agreement with someone, get it in writing. All great tips. Great way to wrap up and like I summarize a few closing thoughts from the podcast. So that is the 18-year property cycle, leverage and other people's money, being an added value investor through the three Fs of discount, appreciation, yield. And now final few tips there from Richard in this podcast. I hope you found it helpful if you've been listening so far all to the end. Thank you, Richard, for coming on. I know people can find you at The Property Voice. And I know you've got a new book out as well. Is that what you want to plug here at the end or anything else at all? Yeah, the complete guide to property finance. Got to mention that. So it's it, it's good. Yeah, honestly, yeah. it's good. Great book. <laughs> Go and get it now on Amazon. And all good online retailers or just Amazon? All good online and indeed offline retailers. Lovely. Go into Waterstones, get a physical copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I'm not sure if Waterstones are actually stocking it, but some people somewhere are. <laughs> good stuff. Thank you very much for coming on, Richard. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Ryan. No, no problem at all. Cheers.